Hey there. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being with me. My guest today is Kelly Meyer. He's a fellow podcaster. He's an author of a book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And don't let the title fool you because this episode is not just about starting a brewery or selling beer. It's about the restaurant business in general, but mostly it relates to failure. It's about things that didn't work and why they didn't work and mistakes that we might be making that could lead to a different outcome and how not to be jaded by pride or the amount of money you've already spent in something and what the exit strategy could be if, in fact, things aren't going as planned. We cover a lot of best practices. We talk about marketing. We talk about guest service. We talk about hooks and what draws customers in as opposed to what doesn't. So we cover a lot of ground. Thank you so much to the sponsors of this week's episode. Thanks again to you, our audience, for tuning in. Now, on with the episode. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. True hospitality and guest convenience are vital in your restaurant. I'm proud to say that for 23 years, my restaurants provided both with paging equipment by JTEC. We used guest and server pagers, and my teams could not have delivered great dining experiences without them. JTEC systems help you run a great restaurant. Now, JTEC pagers are reliable, durable, easy to set up and operate. Guest pagers increase sales and give guests peace of mind knowing they'll be called when their table's ready. Staff pagers notify when orders are up, fresh, and ready, and save time by eliminating the need for servers to check on orders. JTEC also offers Motorola two-way radio solutions, QR code virtual paging, reservations management, curbside notifications, and, coming soon, Linkware, a wearable watch-like smart band that can receive messages and tasks from the JTEC Linkware application. Now, I saw this product at a recent food show, and it's really cool. To learn more and get a special offer from JTEC exclusively for my listeners, go to www.jtech.com slash rockstars. That's spelled J-T-E-C-H dot com slash rockstars. Listen, when I ran restaurants, I had my core values, the things most important to how I ran my restaurants, monitoring daily operations, training my team for consistently great guest experiences, food safety, quality assurance, and preventative maintenance. All this took a system. Well, here's what Xenia can do. Xenia gives you a modern app, really an operational base camp that scales standard operating procedures, trains your team, controls operations, and even manages food safety. Now, I really like their sensors that continuously monitor temperature for fridges and freezers so you can proactively prevent inventory losses. Now, how valuable is that? Now, whether managing a single or multiple locations, the Xenia app helps you ensure consistency, compliance, and accountability across your operation. You can see full detail in real time from anywhere in your Xenia dashboard with automated reports right to your inbox. Now, again, this was vital in my restaurants. Xenia is offering my listeners white glove service with free onboarding and implementation so you can jump straight into immediate usage and value. Xenia starts at just $69 per month per location. So get my special deal at www.xenia.team slash rockstars. Xenia is spelled X-E-N-I-A. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. And Kelly, hey, thanks for joining me on the show today. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for letting me share my story. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And, you know, I was reading about your background and you're also an author and a podcaster yourself, and we'll get into all of that. But uh, there are definitely a lot of business lessons that we'll be covering today. But it all starts with, you know, what's your story? Like, where does your experience in hospitality begin? And I know you've got a fitness background also. So did the two somehow combine or just tell us your story? No, the short answer is not really. I think the the fitness thing was kind of my first career in the sense that that's where my skill set, my hobbies, my kind of lifestyle um, all can sort of fit in. And, you know, of course, they always say the best way to ruin a hobby is to start a business around it. And that's, that's exactly that's what I did. Yep. <laughs> so, um, but no, I mean, what happened is it got to the point that I had 30 employees, eight locations, um, doing well. The company was great, but like many people and corporate guys will tell the same story. It just started being soul sucking, and um, especially at that level, 
the people I talked to, the members that I engaged with weren't the people who were happy anymore. They were um, with the people who had had a billing problem or had wanted to cancel and couldn't or whatever. And and I just, I wanted to be at that front point where people were smiling at me again, like the old days when I was just a personal trainer. And so I transitioned into what was to me next. And I joke with people, I, I wanted to do alcohol. So my loves were Napa Valley Cab, uh, Scotch whiskey and beer. And at the time, I liked living in Texas, so I decided to do something that would allow me to stay here. And beer was the only thing that did. So. Gotcha. All right. So, well, that's kind of diverse because beer lovers traditionally are beer aficionados and enthusiasts, and they really get involved in nuances of beer. And there's so many styles and flavors and variations, of course. But it's rare uh, to hear of someone who's also into a good Cabernet as well as you know some single malt scotches because there's so much nuance to all different types of scotches also. So that's interesting that you say so. So let's talk about you getting into this business. Did you all of a sudden have a brainchild to start a brewery or a bar? Like, where did that all come in? And let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, so effectively, we decided to transition out of the fitness business. Um, and so we put put the business on the market, sold it, you know, successful seven-figure exit. And then nice. what's next, right? So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we I, I convinced my wife, I joked during a weak moment that this would be cool. Let's do a brewery. It was going to be production focus, not so much um, hospitality at the time because the laws in Texas were different and they changed maybe two years after we opened where at the time a production brewery couldn't have a hospitality piece or not really. You could do tours, but not, you know, your booze over the counter for, for tabs and tips, you know, is different. Um, and so we originally started doing that. And as the industry transitioned, it, I obviously started having fun in the hospitality piece. We opened a tasting room. We did events with bars and restaurants around Texas. And uh, so really started to enjoy that part of the process. But the hospitality initially wasn't really a piece of what the brewery was, I guess is a good way to say it. Okay. So it sort of evolved over time. So did you find a space, uh, a lease space, or did you own property? Um, what did, What happened there? No, but if you listen to my podcast, they'll tell you that uh, you should always buy your property because the people who have come out of this on the back end, happy and successful, by and large, were the ones that invested in real estate that went up 5x instead of rent that went up 5x. Agreed. And, I'm a total believer in that. And that's what I did as well. Yeah. Well, it allows you a little more flexibility too, yep. to refi it if times get tough or whatever. You've got an asset. Yeah. Uh, but Thank so you. at the time, we wanted to be in downtown and there was not very much real estate available. We we looked for probably six, eight months, a couple of options that could have been purchased. And then the one we settled in is we needed a cement floor. We needed to be near the bars and restaurants um, just, and it just didn't work. And so the only place we were able to find, we had to rent. And that building, I believe they purchased for around $300,000. And uh, based on taxes, I think today, 13 years later, it's it's worth about five times that. So, mm -hmm. Okay. You know, similar to me, it's like I wanted to build a building, buy land and create this great concept in a great location and similar story. It's like I had to walk before I could run. And when I was looking for financing, the first question is, so how many restaurants or bars you ever owned or managed before? And I'm like, well, I've never been in the business, but I got a great idea. Read the business plan, you know? <laughs> so it's really hard to get financing when you're looking for, well, this was 28 years ago. I was looking for a million dollar loan myself to do what I just said, because then you got to fit it up with equipment and furniture fixtures and have working capital cushion, all that kind of stuff. And it was in my business plan, but no one was going to throw a million bucks at me. So, you know, finally a banker said, if you scale this thing way back, I might give you $150,000. And obviously you can't do much with that. So you find, you know, you find a space on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, the leaky roof and no parking and hope for the best. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's, that's kind of how it happened. All right. So let's talk about how elaborate that first concept was. I mean, did you bring in like brewing tanks and all that kind of stuff and brew your own beer on site? And you talked about a tasting room, like, tell us about how elaborate your first concept was before it evolved into more. Yeah. So in my opinion, the, uh, the difference in the different models, like if you open a bar, obviously there is some capital up front, but I think that's a much lower barrier to entry and uh, restaurants are kind of more similar probably to what a production brewery, or at least an on-site small production brewery would be like, you just can't do it without a hundred grand worth of equipment. And that's typically kind of scraping by and getting equipment that isn't super uh, intuitive and maybe isn't even efficient. And so it, it's capital intensive. Yes, it is and, for sure. 
So, so our problem was to knowing that in the beginning, we did get a smaller system and I definitely recommend against that in the book <laughs> and vehemently ever since. Yeah. Uh, for those reasons, it just, it didn't make great beer. And, you know, they always say the best artists can make a Picasso painting with a you know piece of charcoal, but why would you ever want to do that if you could just invest a little bit more in better equipment? Yeah. Buy the best that you can afford. And obviously, yeah, cheapening out on things never works out in the long run for the best. So that that's helpful. Were you the brewmaster? I mean, do you have that skill set? Yeah, I mean, as much as most people did in 2011, uh, especially Texas and and really the broader market overall, you know, we went from 1,600 breweries in the United States in 2010 to almost 10,000 today. And we haven't been graduating that many more experienced brewmasters from the various colleges around the world. So a lot of us were home brewers that, you know, and I'm sure that's a lot in the restaurant industry too. You get a home chef that is really, really good, but that doesn't necessarily scale to the scale of from a five gallon batch to being able to make, um, you know, a, a 15 barrel batch, which is 500 gallons. So uh, there was definitely some learning curves. So when I say I knew how to brew, I did not know how to brew on that kind of a system. And so that took a lot of time figured out. Yeah. And you got to come up with, um, you know, products that really have that flavor profile in the different variations and genres of beer that people really just instantly love and gravitate to because it's such a competitive segment I and mean, it remains and we're going to talk a little bit about the disruption in the industry but still it's like i can't imagine being a home brewer experimenting and trying to put out a product that will actually be attractive and appealing to the customer and and sell and then put you on the map so that you can continue building the business i'm sure that was a challenge for you at least at first right yeah, well, well, especially now compared to then, and obviously that's a question I ask in the podcast a lot. You know, would you do this again? And uh, the the market has so dramatically changed in the last decade, yep. um, and as it has for restaurants, that the way to get attention then is dramatically different than the way guys are getting attention today. And I would never have wanted to do what they're having to do today. So that's part of why I no longer own a brewery. So, yeah, I mean, uh, beyond food operations, I mean, a lot of the breweries that are here, well, first of all, I'm in Portland, Maine, which is a hotbed for craft brewing. Yeah. You know, it's countless number of, of startups continuing to this day, as well as established breweries that have been around for decades. But it's like they started off brewing a, a product and then they had to bring in food, obviously, and do a brew pub and all to round out their offerings. And now it's, it's, well, I wouldn't call it a trend. I'd say it's a, it's a mainstay that most of the most successful breweries are packaging their product and selling it in supermarkets and other retail outlets and all that sort of thing. But it's also a collaborative business where, you know, there's a, a cannery that combines with a brewery or, or, or you can get contract brewing of one beer from some other producer and put your name on it and private label it. And it's a really collaborative industry, at least here in Portland. I mean, I can't speak for the industry as a whole, but that's what I'm seeing here and based on my own experience running bars and restaurants. But it's really interesting that there's so much to it. And, you know, the detail involved in it. I mean, I call this business in general a thousand details, but then suddenly you add the brewing component besides just buying an existing product, you know, brewing it yourself and and trying to stay ahead of what's happening in the competition is is a huge challenge, right? I mean, it, it's an it's immense challenge and it's amazing how many people get into it, not understanding how challenging it's going to be. Because, you know, on paper, you're an existing restaurant, you've got clientele, they're coming in, you're buying a keg for X and selling it for 5X markup. What if you could produce that keg yourself and it only costs you 20 bucks, which is what it looks like on paper, but there's so many more things to it. You know, thanks for sharing that because it's true. I mean, we've always heard how profitable it is to brew your own beer and sell it versus, like you said, buying it from a distributor where obviously the middleman's involved and all that other kind of stuff. And yeah, the profitability is there, but it's not to what it is if you were to brew it yourself. But then there's so many unseen, you know, pitfalls and challenges that come with that. And I'm sure you can tell us about some of them. Yeah, especially I think scale is the biggest thing that, you know, uh, there's a guy I'm interviewing actually in two weeks that that was exactly the story. It was a small uh, restaurant tavern uh, in south south of Houston, I think, southwest of Houston. Yeah. And they were one day they just said, hey, why don't we put a small system in this little room we've got in the back? We'll brew beer. And what's the worst that could happen? It's going to be great. And, you know, a couple batches with quality issues. You've got 
um, some some stuck mash because again the smaller equipment doesn't have the same kind of technological advances to it and so there's a lot more waste in it and then how do you pay a guy a living wage to produce a small amount of beer it has to be enough of a volume to be able to afford him and and they just sort of realized that that wasn't the case they they weren't profitable and it just wasn't working you know you brought up something that comes to mind so i competed for geez a couple decades with a brew pub that had a better location that i had and they were the dominant place in town when i started my business and my goal was just to get in there and kind of take them down and become the dominant place which i ultimately achieved but they were really really successful and they poured a lot of beer but they had septic issues because what to do with the raw byproducts mm. of the brewing process and how do you dispose of that and they ended up dumping half of it in the septic system which was clogging everything up and i swear that septic pumping truck was there like three times a week like the whole time i was there and i'm like you know there's just a question it's like you're creating byproducts of your beer product that you then need to get rid of to clean out your tanks or wherever that stuff goes. I mean, what do you do with it? Well, that's the thing. So there's some ways to neutralize what goes down the drain and you're supposed to do that. Um, and again, depending on scale. So at the smaller scale of, of the, like the guy I'm interviewing in a couple of weeks that if you're producing, you know, let's say 10 kegs a week, you're not really dumping much more down the drain than you would as far as uh, acidity and from the cooking process, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and cleaning equipment. But as you get larger, did the tanks get tougher to clean? You can't have mechanical action scrubbing because you've got to have heat and chemical action, which means you're going to use a lot more kind of caustic chemicals in a lot larger quantities. And you can reuse those, but that then requires another five or $10,000 piece of equipment that not every brewery was going to invest in. And so a lot of that gets dumped because it's cheaper to dump, you know, uh, six cents worth of um, the, the chemical than it is to buy the equipment to reuse it. Right. And so like we had to meet with the city and the city wanted to know what our affluent was and they had the right to come test it. And if we exceeded a certain uh, parts per million of different things, then they were going to either tax us to deal with it and or require some sort of, um, uh, I guess, treatment before it goes down the drain. Gotcha. All right, let's pivot. Um, let's talk about the evolution of of your brewery. Did you eventually turn it into a hospitality operation serving certain food items? Uh, so we never did food. Uh, okay. but after I sold in September, the new owners did do kind of a small, uh, basically pizza kitchen with a local restaurant that pre-made the pizza and then they would just put it in the oven and send it out or, or do they still doing that um, so we didn't we didn't have the space so food was definitely a problem and yeah. in my chart in the book i put in there kind of how we figured out the hospitality space because obviously at that point we were struggling to create in our business we needed cash over the counter because that's daily and that was something that was sorely lacking in the distribution model in a brewery so we started really focusing on how do we get butts and seats and you know what's the marketing that works what's the product mix in our draft line all that kind of thing um and food just unfortunately wasn't possible for us and so uh that was a big problem and, and anyways back to the book so yeah i i show a chart so like a average saturday over six months it goes 11 o'clock 12 o'clock three o'clock four o'clock five o'clock six o'clock seven o'clock eight o'clock it just died because everybody left to go get food and so it's a huge problem in our business. Mm -hmm. I see. Gotcha. So let's talk about how long did you run this place? And let's, you, you mentioned the word marketing, which is critical to any business. And I'm sure there were a lot of pivots and experiments, but how long did you run it? And was there a time where it looked like it was really going to take off and that it was working? I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, how long, when you decided, okay, it's working, it's not working, I need to pivot to this, pivot to that. Just give us the whole story and then how you ultimately decided to close it. Yeah, so I would say it was, a, I joke it was an 11-year sentence. And so I, I served my time in the brewing yes. industry. Um, and I'm obviously still in the industry, but. But yeah, so it, it was a long list of pivots, to be honest. And that's one of the things that my, I, I did a video blog about why I sold the brewery. And I kind of put the five catastrophic moments in there that these were the things that any one of those I could have maybe should have walked away and I didn't. But even in the beginning, we started off as a production facility 
And then, so we didn't have the tasting room. Two years in, Texas changes the law where breweries can have a tasting room. Okay, that sounds great. Well, we didn't have one, so we got to build it, right? And, and make it pretty and make it fun. And that didn't work. So we built it. It wasn't that pretty. It was cool, but didn't have enough seats and it, it wasn't an efficient use of space. And um, and we actually had to close for three months to do that, which is just like anyone could imagine, not fun at all financially. Of course, yeah. Loss of business, loss of market. People move on to other things and trying to get them back is a challenge. And I hear you. Yeah, keep going. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, we started with a small system. So during that time, we realized that we couldn't do the scale and the volume that was going to be needed to actually make any real money. So we tore the whole thing out, ordered a new system from Europe for $350,000. Um, it's a big capital investment. Yeah. Started over, built a tasting room. Things looked good for a minute. Um, this is like 12, 13 during the time when craft was really starting to take off. And we had some distributors that got on board here in Texas. We'd get some new accounts. And then what happened is that because it seemed like a good idea to me, it seemed like a good idea to everyone. And the growth, you know, I think Texas had 140 breweries maybe when we opened. And now there's 400, 500 almost. Uh, It just grew so much that what we, and, and you probably know that from your side of the industry too, that every bar did not 5X the number of tap handles, the number of beers they had. There are some that did, but those were rare and those were the unique ones. So there just weren't places to sell. And so then we pivot to packaging and so we're, now we're deeply into the bottles and the, you know, which states can we get into and ultimately went up to seven different states around the United States with different distributors. And it would always was a, a great lead in. We'd send, you know, pallets of beer in, they'd place the pallets, they'd set up a second order. And then usually it would kind of stagnate out as again, they're just, there's so many different breweries, um, and, you know, domestically they, where they were and then other breweries trying to come in and it just, the competition ended up really kind of choking out any profitability there. So now if you ask people, most people would tell you the pivot is back to the tasting room and that the breweries doing well are out of distribution. And now they're competing with bars and restaurants directly for you know, butts and seats. And uh, we did the same thing. It's just, you know, new, new seating out front, um, tried live music, different events, um, different types of beers that we were releasing, different marketing approaches to do that. And there are bars in San Antonio to this day that won't sell certain breweries because those breweries charge a dollar less for their beer at their tasting room and it makes it hard to sell. Oh yeah, um, for sure. So you're mentioning San Antonio. Is that where your operation was located? Yeah, I joke with people, if you fly into Austin and drive south right about the time it stops sucking, that's where we are. Um, we're in a city called New Braunfels. It's oh. two two rivers in town, world's largest water park. We're a fun little area, but we're definitely kind of between the two big uh, cities, which uh-huh. makes esoteric breweries a challenge in a small German town. So, Okay. Oh, it's a German town too. So were mm-hmm. the styles of beer primarily German beers to apply, you know, to appeal to that customer, that clientele? Yeah, so they were when we opened. I did all kind of German wheat beers was my thing. Yeah. That was that was our niche. And then I transitioned primarily. But we started experimenting with mixed culture and more Belgian styles, French inspiration. And then in 2017, I went completely farmhouse where everything was a mixed culture, a little bit of balanced acidity. Uh, like we mentioned in the beginning, I have a palate that appreciates wine. And uh, as much as that made beautiful art and made things I was very proud of. I think it was a massive uh, detriment to my career. As so, well, I'm curious, uh, again, let's go back to that for a second, because you mentioned an interest in, in fine wines and scotches and all that. Did you bring in any of those products at all to round out your offerings or maybe appeal to the ladies or that kind of thing? In addition to just the beer? I did in the tasting room. Uh, we couldn't do spirits because, well, we could, but the way Texas yeah. works, if you do spirits, it doubles your taxes and changes your whole licensing and stuff like that. Oh, of course. And so, so you have to, you can't dabble in spirits. If you're going to do mm-hmm. spirits, you need a shot girl. You got to have Jaeger bombs. And, and this wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, gotcha. So I did, did bring in wine. Uh, we're in Texas. People were proud of Texas. So it was primarily Texas wine. I uh, did ciders and guest beers so we could mm-hmm. appeal to you know, the Dos Equis drinker that didn't really understand what we did on our uh, kind of fringe offerings. 
and, and some of those were successful, but you know, ultimately what you find is that most people that go to a brewery want to drink the brewery stuff. So yeah. it would have been better if I had private labeled it and pretended it was mine, I think, but um, we did get some sales out of it. Okay. Gotcha. So a hook, I'm a huge believer in hooks and obviously our audience knows that that's something that sets you apart from the competition and it's something that captures the guest's imagination and all that. And successful restaurants that sell beer um well a, a big draw is you mentioned earlier number of tap handles and it's not uncommon here in the portland market to walk into a restaurant that literally has 20 tap handles and you can see it and it's visible and they have mug clubs and all this kind of stuff and that is a draw unto itself but is that something that is a limiting factor when you're starting a brewery because you're not going to brew 20 different varieties of beer and have 20 different tap handles? Isn't it mostly like four or five or six specialty beers that maybe have different styles, but it's not an extensive offering in an operation like what you had? And was that something that you found hard to compete with? Maybe other locations or operations that had lots of taps? Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting, um, well, I, get, I don't have to say interesting. I kind of rail against the per, the prevailing concept of the brew pub is that you basically make everything. You'll have an Irish dry stout, a Belgian wheat beer. You're going to have a yeah. German wheat beer. And if you think about it logically, outside of like um, Cheesecake Factory, most restaurants would specialize in something. <laughs> so um, by not doing that, it's different yeast, it's different palates, it's different water chemistry. It kind of doesn't make sense for that we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we have to be all things to all people. But from a business perspective, breweries that don't struggle and you don't really have a choice. And so normally what I recommend is you have a guest beer program and the guest beers are the ones that'll fill the holes that you have. Gotcha. You're always going to have some gaps in your experience and ability, or you should, right? Because mm -hmm. you can't, can't walk in and specialize in making certain styles of things, styles of things, and then also have a palette for everything. You should understand your limitations. Although again, it's this juxtaposition of you kind of can't, but you almost have to. So. Okay. Let's go back to marketing for a moment because you mentioned, okay, there were certain turning points in my business where I should have turned back, but didn't. Was marketing a big part of that? And did you find that there were certain things that kind of were working and you thought, oh, if I just double down on this, um, it may turn the tide or, you know, let's talk about your marketing program and what you found to be working and how you attracted customers to your place and what worked or what failed. And and then I want to dig a little deeper, peel back that onion about, okay, I should have turned back now. This, these were the signs on the wall, but I, ref, you know, I refused to look or, you know, believe it was happening, that sort of thing. So marketing first, then one. we're going to yeah. talk about that point of no return. All right. Yeah. So marketing, I honestly struggle with a lot. And so we actually had a conversation with a guy uh, yesterday about, he was like, well, what percentage of your revenue do you allocate to marketing? Uh, or do you recommend a brewery allocate to marketing? And I I absolutely hate these kinds of things because I think that they add weakness to the model. And so someone can just say, well, it's I'm supposed to do 8%. So I'm just going to throw money at this. We I, I was always more strategic. And because I came from the fitness industry, I think that's part of it where we would do anything. And it was all about the ROI. Um, I used to joke, I was the only millionaire walking around in the July, Texas heat, putting flyers on houses because that was the single best return on investment that I could come up with in that industry. Yeah. And I tried to, stuff, yeah. Yeah, I tried to translate that to the, the beer industry. And not only were some of those tactics that we employed there illegal, um, but they also just weren't always effective. So the short answer is I never really found a great marketing source that I could tie an ROI to and say, if you do this one, you will always have a return. It was seasonal. It fluctuated. We tried a variety of different things. And at the end of the day, for us, the only thing that really had a great return on investment would be in-store samplings. Uh, generally, it was fairly cheap return on investment. As far as getting seats and butts in the brewery, um, you know, the, the things like advertising coupons on Google, I got a good return on those. And obviously, they were fairly cheap for what they were. But you know, newspaper, radio, even Facebook ads, like you, you'd get likes, you'd get you know, you have views, but it didn't necessarily, no, I, I barely saw someone come in on Saturday and go, oh, I saw that post you did yesterday. I mean, it happens, but 
Rarely. not enough to yeah. yeah you know thanks for sharing that um that's a message that a lot of restaurant and bar owners really miss because this is a business as you probably recall where the phone rings off the hook someone's always trying to sell you something you think you don't need or people show up unannounced at the back door without appointments all the time trying to sell you stuff you don't think you need and then every once in a while you get caught in a weak moment where something they say strikes a chord in you and you're like yeah I'll try that you know what the hell and and yeah. you sign up for a radio ad or something and and the point you're making is it's not trackable unless everyone who walks through the door said, I saw your Facebook post or I heard you on the radio, you would never know if there is, in fact, a return on investment. And we can spend tens of thousands of dollars on those marketing things that you just don't know where the business is coming from or if, if it's driving any business at all. So that was a great point that you shared. Thanks. Thanks for that. Let's talk about um, the location. Um was it a high visibility area, um, high traffic location? Was it off the beaten path? Like what were the limitations to it? Or was it a good location that drove some business? It was a decent location. So it had been yeah. in, in the city. I, I mean, we have a, like an actual like physical center of the city and there's a gazebo there. There's a circle um, around it. And so we have kind of this downtown feel they'll block the streets off. We'll do, you know, festivals and events and, and musical things. And we're two blocks away from that, like one block down, one block over that same section still be blocked off in most of those festivals. And there's a lot of walk-in traffic. Okay. It, it's downtown. So traffic parking is always an issue, but walk walkability wise, it's good. Yeah. You're making a good point, whether there's parking or not, like if there's a downtown area that's still vibrant, as opposed to an old tired downtown that's on the way out. I mean, people will find a way down there. And walking is a big thing. And sometimes, you know, people are even do the pub crawl thing where I'm going to go have a beer here and then I'm going to go have a beer there. And it's like, it's what people do. All right. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, I really want to <laughs> unpack a little deeper that point of no return in your business. Now, you, you recognize the fact that you made certain mistakes in that business. Um, if you feel like it, you can certainly clarify, because I know that's a big part of your book, which I like that you're standing in front of, or you're sitting in front of that. The name of the book is How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, and now it's also your podcast. So <laughs> do you want to talk about certain mistakes and then talk about where you should have maybe seen the writing on the wall a little sooner and maybe why you didn't? As there are many elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with diners enough and with the right message? Could your kitchen be putting out more orders than your dining areas have room for? Well, it can be overwhelming, especially when the reason you got into this business is for the food and the people. That's why restaurants get Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the marketing tech platform designed to make growing your restaurant easy, so you don't have to grow it alone. With Pop Menu, you can capture more guests and their preferences through your restaurant's website that's designed to easily collect contact information and data so you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you. Connect and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that personalizes marketing. Make all your systems work better together, improve margins, and conquer the chaos of your restaurant's digital presence. Pop Menu has a special offer for my listeners. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Yeah. I mean, so I think it's an important part of what is the kind of going on in our industry. And I'd be curious your feedback, whether that leads into bars and restaurants, because my experience is I don't see it, but it is rampant in beer. And, and that's a toxic positivity is the best way to say it. That okay. the, the big association, the Brewers, Brewers Association, um, and even different, uh, publications that publish different articles and things about the beer industry, they just refuse to say that anyone's struggling. And so we all kind of continue this fight, right? For years and beer is growing. The number of outlets is growing. The much less of a scale, but the market penetration is growing and our market share versus the big beer is growing. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and then when you struggle, you just sort of think like, well, it must be only me. So I'm going to refinance this. I'm going to pivot this. I'm going to partner up with this. I need one more distributor maybe to open this market and continue to grow. Or, you know, I added tap handles in my tasting room so that I could have four more offerings because that should bump things. But when it really got bad, um, I started asking, like, what I decided is that 
the business as it was, was not going to continue to grow. And we were a niche and this was 19. There were some other mistakes in front of that too, but this is 2019. And so I called some people around the state and I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm shipping out of state. I've got distributors all over and I have, but I have a unique and a niche product. So the more, again, more like a wine palette. What if I partner up with someone who just does very simple beer, has a good hype train and I'm the mixed culture version there that, and we combine forces. I sell their beer in my tasting room. They throw their beer in our palettes. We send them to Florida. Everybody wins. I could not find one that was profitable. So the, the issue became, yeah, everybody knows you. You're the most popular brewery in San Antonio, but you're losing 20 grand a month. I'm losing five grand a month. Let's combine forces and lose 25. That sounds really stupid to me. And so that was when my eyes kind of got opened. And the more people I talked to, uh, the more I realized that profitability is not happening. It's just kind of a lie. And so that was when I started the book to figure out, okay, what did I do wrong? How do I fix this? And how do I move forward? And the reason the book is not called How to Fix Your Brewery is because I don't know, <laughs> nor does anybody else, but I know what to do wrong. So I'm really good at that. Awesome. Yeah. I hope everyone listening is intrigued and gets the book and reads it. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. So let's talk about mug clubs because in my experience, mug clubs are a huge source of cash, especially if you get a sponsor. So you don't have to pay for the mugs and the t-shirts and all that value added. And you're customers can become your best brand ambassadors and it kind of grows. If you start a successful mug club, then one member tells another member to join and they're paying you membership cash pretty much every year. And that could be anywhere up to a hundred bucks to belong to a mug club. And that's free and clear cash flow if you find a sponsor. And all you have to do is give great service to your customer. And it becomes this sort of exclusive club where I would rather have my own custom mug that I, you know, customize and then I have stickers all over it and it's my thing and it's got a low number and it's a point of pride versus the average tourist or customer that has a, a standard pint when all these people have mugs it, and then that sells the mugs unto themselves. Did you have one of those and did you have any success with it if you did? So I didn't do a mug club. I have interviewed some other breweries that have. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, the most recent interview I did was with a guy out of Chicago. He had a mug club. And uh, he was on my podcast because he closed down. So it didn't work for him. But okay. uh, what I did have is a bottle club and we kind of treated yep. that the same way. And so they would get like, like a wine club. They'd have okay. a quarterly allocation. And because of that, they got free flights when they came to the brewery. They got discounts on everything. And I struggled to get as many people as I, I think we had like 100 at towards the end. And for that to be viable for me in the, for it to have been a viable reason to continue. I was targeting 250 to 300 and in my small town, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and I, I think that could have happened in an Austin or Houston or a Dallas, but um, in, in my small town, it was no way to make that work. But I have talked to other breweries that have done well with it. I've, I, there's one in planning right now in Texas that's charging $1,250 for theirs. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I wonder. Wow. That I can't imagine the value added you have to offer to give, you know, to give people a reason to pay that kind of money. But wow. Yeah. Anything in between. That's that's killer. I, I yeah. zoomed in on the Facebook thing trying to look for a decimal point and I couldn't find one. It's actually twelve hundred going. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe it's working somewhere. That, that brings to mind, when I was a younger person, uh, my best friend and I used to go to a place that offered a, they had, they had a beer club and the whole point was you want to, they had a checklist, kind of a scorecard kind of thing and beers around the world. I think they had a hundred different beers and we would go in there and it was like this, well, one, it was kind of a point of pride to like tick off the different countries and try the different styles. And then you really kind of get into beer and you really can sort of compare one to the other, but it was a reason to have loyalty to this place. And it was a smart marketing hook for, for that place to encourage as many people as possible to come in and drink a hundred beers there. You know, how long would that take and how much food are you going to buy along the way as well? So these are just some marketing ideas. I'm sure you've seen some of those also. Yeah. There's a place in San Antonio. Well, they're actually a change. They're all over, but the flying yeah. saucer does that. Mm -hmm. And multiple people will have a few of those hundred clubs. Like they're just, they just keep going. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. So we talked a little bit about 
the point of no return, but you know, it's kind of a point of pride. You've sunk so much money and so much time and effort and sweat and tears into a place. And some people just can't let go. It becomes their identity after a while, even though they see the bleeding and they see the money and some people have deeper pockets than others, but God, what a challenge. Like uh, I've been in similar situations, not everything that I started turned to gold. And that is a you know, it's a magic moment you get to where you suddenly realize I'm either going to make it and I've got to do, I got to double down and make it happen, or I just got to shut down. And then you try to sell something. Now you actually sold your operation, right? But you lost money on the sale. Right. I, I sold the assets for dramatically less than I invested, but I was pretty thrilled to uh, walk away with any money at all. God, um, and and that's in that situation. So we closed on September 3rd, and I had not paid the rent on the first, and by the twentieth, I wouldn't have been able to. So, at the end of the day, I got very lucky that uh, it all worked out in that sense. Yeah, you know, it's such a fickle business. Whether you're talking restaurants or bars, you you go into it with the best of intentions. You work really hard. You you try to hire the right people. You try to spend money in the right areas and all that kind of stuff. You think you're picking a great location. You think your concept is dialed. And then you get into it and, you know, that if you build it, they will come doesn't always happen. And, you know, that was a situation I had years ago where Mexican food was absolutely the hottest thing on the planet. I had a great existing business and then there was a piece of real estate for sale that was a failing restaurant. I thought I could turn it around with this Mexican concept and I spent money and I bought the land and I tried to put all the pieces in place and ultimately it wasn't working. And thankfully, I mean, there was a Hail Mary in this that some um, people that were on serial entrepreneurs in our community used to be in the restaurant business like a long, long time ago. And suddenly we, you know, we convinced them that maybe you want to get back in the restaurant bar business. And they did. And they ended up leasing my, my property that I owned for two years. They continued to improve it. They paid all my expenses. And then they ultimately purchased it from me two years later. So it really worked out well for me. It doesn't always work out in every case that way, but you know, you got to keep all your options open when you're in this situation and try to get out with the least amount of damage. So maybe, maybe some hurt pride and a, a lower bank account. But like you said, oh my God, I got down on my hands and knees and kissed the ground when, when we signed the papers and we were done. So I know that feeling as well. So yeah. well, and like you said, I think the real estate's a big part of why that worked out for you. So that, it did. That makes a difference for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, you mentioned all the points earlier in, in this um, podcast about why, if at all possible, you should have that long-term vision of of buying the real estate just to control your destiny. I mean, I got stories where you spend years building a successful business and you got a lease and then all of a sudden the landlord doesn't renew your lease because the highest and best use of a property is not your restaurant, your bar, your brewery. It's a condo building, you know, and I'm going to level this mm -hmm. building and build condos and make a fortune. And I watched that happen uh, here in Portland, Maine years ago to one of my favorite places. They had to mm -hmm. move away to another community, maybe 10 miles away and rebuild that business from scratch after having a viable, thriving business. So yeah. I mean, you you have to be able to look around corners and we can't in this business. And most people do get into it with a lease because it's easier, it's less expensive. But if you build something successful, you should always have your eyes on the prize. Where can I, you know, can I buy this location that I'm in from the from the landlord or can I find something close by that fits my needs? But thank you for starting off. I'm a huge believer in that. All right, let's talk about the craft beer industry in general. Um, I think you caught my attention with Anchor Steam, and I, I wasn't even aware of that. I was certainly aware of that beer. I think it was San Francisco-based, wasn't it? Or was it Oregon? It was yeah, it was San Francisco. Okay, so tell us what happened there, and then let's talk about the industry in general, what's going on. Um, so obviously from the outside looking in, we can make speculations, but ultimately with Anchor, they, they're kind of where the, or Fritz specifically, who bought anchor back in the day mm -hmm. and kind of like turn it into the i guess you could say the second microbrewery new albion supposed to technically be the first up a little bit north of there yeah and just was sort of the first guy to make you know full flavored beer make it in you know fun little bottles and got nationwide distribution but like you're seeing recently and i think you're going to consider continue to see quite a bit of it the industry is just kind of, I mean, it's at a bubble, there's no doubt, but it's just gotten to a point where it's so crowded that people still love the beer. There's this ma major backlash that it, it went away. 
but they weren't drinking it. Had they been drinking it over the last 10 years and buying Anchor and, and stuffing their fridge full of it, uh, nothing like that would have happened. So they sold the brewery to a conglomerate, which is pretty normal for a, a brewery of that size that you, know, you, you either pass it on to your kids or you're going to sell it to one of the big players. And the big player just you know, didn't invest in growth. Uh, no one's really sure what their plan was. It sounded like it was to brew one of their um, other beers there and then realize that the the style of equipment they had, they couldn't do that. So there's, of course, conspiracy theories that Sapporo tried to kill it. I don't have any reason to believe that. I, th I think the brand just moved away. It just wasn't popular anymore. And they didn't make a hazy IPA, so they're screwed, right? Let's go back to packaging for a moment because you go in any supermarket today and there's like, I don't know, a uh, hundred yards of fridge space devoted to craft beer, at least in my town. And I don't know much about beer because I'm not really an aficionado. I don't drink it so much anymore. I'm more of a wine guy, but it's like I walk into that supermarket and every single packaging is vying for my attention. And a lot of it, the names, the graphics, the colors on these cans is like overwhelming, but often I'm sure most people select a new beer just by virtue of what the packaging looks like if it fits their style of drinking. Oh, there's a hundred thousand IPAs out there, but wow, look at that cool package and that cool name. I'm going to try it. So suddenly you need to, well, very few of us, like you said, are marketing experts, but now you need someone with amazing graphic talent, right? And really creative naming ability to come up with a product and, you know, and, and that gives you a sort of an edge in the marketplace. But then if you're a restaurant or a bar owner, it's like, do you select beers just by virtue of what the packaging looks like? Because that's going to sell more beer in your restaurant or bar. I mean, what are your thoughts on that whole packaging versus the actual quality of the product within? Uh, they're rarely uh, scaled together. They're disproportionate in most places. So what you see a lot of times is that the, the larger players obviously have the money to pay the graphic designers to do the focus groups and to figure out what's going to get the eyes where they need to be to, you right. know, to get people to buy it. So it's a chicken and the egg. You can make the argument, but the, the reality is that the, the most branding only has a short shelf life, <laughs> no pun intended. And mm -hmm. so you yes, see a lot yes. of rebranding. Oh, so even the, the same beer or the same IPA or whatever we're talking about may go through transformations over the life cycle because it starts off hot and then it's, they, they notice it starts to level off. So now we got to rebrand that beer to get the sales going again. Is that, is that what you're seeing? That's what's going on? Yeah. Well, I'm sure every industry is like that, but yeah. for us, especially there's a distinct lack of creativity in the beer industry. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's making the same 50 styles and there's 10,000 breweries, right? But if if there's a successful branding piece that's inspirational, cool, and gets sort of like the zeitgeist of the culture, it gets copied a lot. And so then they've got to almost break away from the mold that came behind them. Um, so you see a lot of changes in there. But um, in answer to your question, I, I actually have asked retailers this question, particularly on the podcast, like, how do you select beers? Some of them will go to rating sites and decide you know based on the consumer ratings what they're going to sell some you know and honestly are going to take the kickbacks and we can all pretend they don't happen but there's distributors that'll come in buy the kegs buy the first round spend mm -hmm. money and yep. that matters i mean if i was a retailer it would matter to me i, I get it yeah, thanks for bringing that up too, because in our industry, um, every state has different laws about the amount of value you can accept from a distributor or, um, you know, anyone that you, any vendor that you buy from when alcoholic beverages are, but, but they all play that game and they all cross a very fine line and it's very easy to make all your choices based on the value someone is at least promising to give you. And then suddenly you run into, you know, liquor law violations. You could be fined, you could lose your license. And again, it varies state to state, but it's definitely something to be wary of, especially if you're starting a new um, restaurant or brewery that's going to work with distributors and, and buy product. You know, yeah, this has been happening forever. And mm -hmm. and sometimes, yeah, you, you don't know what's around the next corner. So word of the wise, you got to be careful there. So thanks for sharing that. So we've covered quite a bit of ground today. Kelly, uh, anything we missed that you want to share? Hmm. Put me on the spot. I, I don't think so. I mean, other than the fact that uh, the one, one message I like to make sure people know is that I don't think that opening a brewery is empirically a bad idea. I don't think opening a bar or restaurant in this market is a bad idea. I just think that 
we need to be honest about the struggle. And that's ultimately what my podcast is about, what the book is about. It's still fun. I still love doing it. I'm, I'm actually enjoying going to bars and restaurants again. Like I, now that I'm a retired consumer, um, more than I ever used to. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I, I love it. So I'm, I'm back. You ever go back to your old place if it's still operating? Yeah, no, it's, it's not far from my house. And so occasionally I'll go back there and say hi to the, the new guys. They don't make any of my old beer anymore. So it's kind of fun. It's, it's not like I have to care about the quality or whether they've killed it. They make all new things. So I've had some good times over there. It's funny when you mentioned, did they kill it? Because I've sold several restaurants and bars that I've started from scratch. And sometimes people have what they think is a better idea and they sometimes <laughs> fix what really isn't broken and they end up crashing the whole thing. And then sometimes they leave mostly everything alone, but something that was really strategic or powerful for your brand gets changed and you're kind of shocked. Like, why would you do that? It was like such a powerful part of your brand, you know? So I'm, I don't know. I'm sort of a, when we're in this business, we can be sort of critics, right? We go out to dine and we go out to drink in bars and whatever. And if you knew that I used to go there when someone else owned it, now I go in and you think, wow. It used to be great. And why did they change that? Because it worked so well. And everyone's obviously got their own opinions. But thanks for sharing your insights into the industry, um, for being with us as a great guest on the podcast, Kelly. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, letting me participate. I, I had a lot of fun. Excellent. It was fun. And well, alcohol is fun. You mentioned it when you started the <laughs> podcast. Yeah, we got out of fitness and we got into beer because it was fun. <laughs> You shared a for lot sure. of key learnings and nuggets along the way and, and best business practices. So thanks again for being here. Yeah. Anything else you can do to help, let me know. All right. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks so much to our audience for tuning in. Thanks to our sponsors of this episode. And we can't wait to see you all next time. Thanks, Kelly, for being a great guest. Wow, you really brought me back. You know, I've had successes in this business and I've had failures. And, you know, there's such a fine line between when you just sort of see the writing in the wall and things are starting to maybe take a turn for the worse. And you think, oh, if I just do this, maybe I can turn it around. Or if I just do that or spend a little money here or there. And it doesn't always work. So you definitely were an eye opener to our audience. And a lot of us are facing similar situations and challenges, especially um, after the last couple of years. We've been beaten up bad in this business. And now with inflation and labor challenges, on top of all the other thousands of details we talked about. So thank you so much for sharing best practices and your experience in this business. And uh, thanks also to our sponsors. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. Can't wait to see you next time. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons. For fun, celebration, for family, for lifestyle. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's hard to find great staff, Costs are rising and profits are disappearing. It's a treacherous road and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants that I've now sold for millions of dollars. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. I created a game-changing system and it's filled with everything I've learned in over 20 years running super profitable, super fun restaurants. Everything from creating high-profit menu items and cost controls to staff training where your teams serve and sell to marketing hooks, money-maximizing tips, and efficiencies across your operation. What does this mean to you? More money to invest in your restaurant, to hire a management team, time freedom, and peace of mind. You don't just want to run a restaurant. You want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy, and I'll show you how it's done.